0: I don't know if I'm going to recover from that. Oh. Hmm. I, so I've been in this passage for a couple of weeks now. And man, it is dark. <laughs> and the only reason that those words that we just sang are so sweet. Is because of the darkness of these moments that we're going to be looking at this morning. So I I really want to ask you, um, by God's grace, to sit in it and to let the darkness get your attention. Because as we see that, as we experience that, then the light... Man, it is so precious and so life-changing. I want to read our passage before I get started. Um, We're in Luke 22. Starting in verse 63, last week, Jeff took us through the betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane and then the arrest of Jesus. And now we're picking up the story uh, again in in verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy! Who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, And they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. And then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Short and sweet. An absolute mockery of justice. The the context for this passage is certainly legal. Um, Jesus was now facing the Jewish judicial system made up of the guards that are mentioned here and a a group called the Sanhedrin. We'll look at that in a minute. But as readers, again, we're sitting here, we're watching this whole thing unfold, and we're confronted with the universal concept of justice like every person in this room knows what that means now we may have a little bit of a different idea of how that works itself out in our lives and in the lives of others but the idea of justice you get it it's in you I've given you a definition I don't know how good it is but it made sense to me hopefully it will to you But if we think about just the the concept of justice, it is societal conformity with objective truth applied impartially to all people. Say that again. Societal conformity. That means there's a sense in which we all kind of understand together what it is. There's an agreement there. And it's based upon objective truth. It doesn't matter what you and I think individually. There is this thing, objective truth, that is true no matter what anybody thinks about it. So it's society gathering around that truth and then applying it impartially to everyone. Lady Justice embodies blind and impartial justice for all people. It is a code of conduct for us in the United States. It's rooted in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. So once again, I'm not saying it's inerrant. I'm saying that there is this core that everything else in terms of what we understand about justice, it all kind of finds its way back to that. Israel had its own judicial code. Um, The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible that Moses put together under the inspiration of God, that was sort of the constitution, so to speak, for Israel. That was where they went to understand what justice was all about. Let me give you one example out of Deuteronomy 16. Moses writes you shall appoint judges this is under the instruction of God you shall appoint judges and officers in all of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment you shall not pervert justice there's an assumption here that they know exactly what that means you shall not show partiality You shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So obviously, Jesus, God, establishes the nation of Israel, He gives them a land. He gives them a code of conduct, and he expects them to follow it to the letter. And that, by the time we get to the passage we're in today, has been in place for centuries. So there's no real lack of understanding of how this is supposed to go. We just have sinful people that are in charge of the process. So... Again, we're in a legal moment here. Jesus has been arrested, so what are the rights of the accused? Now, again, I want to help us associate our experience with the experience in the first century. So, the Fifth Amendment. In our Constitution, that protects individuals against self-incrimination. There are other benefits to that, but that's one of the things that you and I don't have to incriminate ourselves. There has to be evidence, witnesses, all of these other things. The Sixth Amendment affords criminal defendants seven discrete personal liberties. Here they are. A speedy trial, a public trial, an impartial journey, jury, inform, you have to be informed of pending charges, You have to have the ability to confront and cross-examine opposing witnesses, those who would accuse you. You have to have the ability to compel favorable witnesses to testify through subpoena. And then finally, you have the right, according to the Sixth Amendment, to legal counsel. We all get that. And if any of those rights were neglected, if you were kept from having those, what would you do? right you'd scream it from the mountaintop you'd post it on every social media platform you could find my rights have been violated Jewish law had rights for the accused Jesus has been accused he has been arrested here's what he should have been able to expect a presumption of innocence it's almost laughable a public trial held during the day. Multiple witnesses had to be present. Same deal, he didn't have to incriminate himself. There had to be others who could bring evidence against him. He should have had opportunity for defense. Capital cases had to be tried over the course of two days. And they could not be tried during a feast or festival. Remember, we are on the eve of Passover. (laughs) The prosecution of Jesus was the greatest mockery of justice in all of human history. And we don't want to slip past it. We don't want to overlook it. I, we get the cross, we get the resurrection, and we want to rush there. But this is a part of the story, an important part of the story. Now, it's no surprise that the religious leaders did as they did in Luke eleven forty two, 42, which we studied, seems like, a few years ago. Uh, Jesus said to them, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect... Justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So already, early on in Jesus' ministry, he's highlighting the fact that these guys don't play by God's rules. For us, this is at the top of your page, Hebrews twelve three. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That's why this passage is in our Bible, so that you and I might see the injustice that Jesus endured on our behalf so that we could enjoy eternal life. Well, our passage begins with what I have called brutalizers in verse 63, men who were holding Jesus in custody and having gotten control of him, the, the judicial system is kind of pulling itself together, so they've got some free time and they choose to use that to mock and beat and blaspheme Jesus. Based on what we know from the other Gospels, um, this, Mark 14, Matthew 26, this would have taken place during the night, so we gave you a little bit of a timeline. Jesus was arrested. He was taken back to Annas' house. He was the previous high priest, and he was kept there, eventually brought before Annas. Then he was, after being interrogated there, brought to the sitting high priest, Caiaphas. He was interrogated once again. And then we get to the morning trial that we're studying this morning. In between, perhaps even before and after seeing Annas and Caiaphas, that's what is taking place here with these temple guards. The brutalization of Jesus was inflicted by those who should have been protecting him if you think about somebody who gets arrested and they're presumed innocent then what are the guards supposed to be doing they're just making sure that they get a fair trial that nothing happens to them prior to being tried that's their purpose in that moment and they do just the opposite They mocked Jesus, which was to ridicule, it was to humiliate. And I I just got to say, I'll probably say it again. We've got to recognize Jesus was fully God and fully man, but he was fully God, the creator of all things. The one that had majesty and glory full of holiness without sin. All of that is true of Jesus in this moment. And yet they mock him. They beat him. And If you haven't seen the passion, it probably would be good for you. It's about as good a depiction of what that might have been like as I've ever seen. And we don't like to watch it, do we? Because it is utterly humiliating. The guards specifically assault Jesus the prophet. So they literally put a blindfold on him hit him in the head again and again and again and say, hey, Jesus, prophesy. We hear you're a big prophet in town. Who was it that just hit you in the mouth? Jesus says nothing. He just takes it. I wonder what it might have been like for those men when they took their very last breath and left this life and stood before their judge who called them by name. I know your name. I remember. And if they had not entrusted their life to Christ at some point, then they will know him only as their judge. Nevertheless, in this moment, it says they blaspheme Jesus, which is to revile, to belittle, to defame, to slander. And I, I just, I don't know what I would need to say to help you experience that. For Like if I start running down your family or your spouse or your kids or your physique or your social status or what, like I could just kind of go to anything in the world and just shred you to pieces. And you could do the same with me, right? Those, like words are so wounding. And they just let it fly without any, any restraint. So as I looked at this and try, I literally, I'm just going, okay, Lord, what, what do I need to, to catch here? Other than, obviously, Jesus suffered beyond description. But two things grab my attention. The first is the utter cruelty of sin. Sometimes sin gets a pass. You know, we just sort of look at it like, like I tripped up a little bit. I've said that before. But this really helps us see the ugliness of sin and just how destructive it really is. And then secondly, we see the profound patience of our Savior. First of all, what a disturbing display of sin's malicious nature when given free reign. Remember in verse 53, I think Jeff covered this last week, when he said, this is your hour, the power of darkness. So what we're seeing is a moment where God the Father, God the Holy Spirit steps back, says, Have at him. That's what this looks like when sin has no restraint, when it just abandons itself. Jesus is ravaged by this physically, but but this this was the kind of the, the surprise for me. I just thought sin brutalized. Those temple guards. See, if I look at those guards and I think, what a wretched group of losers. Can't believe they did that. I would never do that. Man, you are so mistaken. Like we're seeing depravity on full display right here. And that depravity is true of every single person who has ever taken a breath on earth. So this should cause us to pause to think sin has brutalized those men. Why else would they do what they did with Jesus? Um, Great sermon on this passage by Spurgeon. He says this, We had need to lay aside our indignation and bring forward penitence instead. For we also have sometimes smitten that dear face of Jesus. Every one of us. Romans 8, there is no condemnation. But listen, we deserved condemnation, didn't we? Let's not miss that. It's hard to accept, but our sin was just as much a reason for Jesus to suffer as theirs was. So no reason to compare. Like We're all in on this. We're all guilty. And then the beautiful thing is that Jesus suffered just as much for those temple guards who abused him as he did for you and me. And that's good news. And that really leads to the second thing that stands out here is the patience of Jesus. That word patience is... The idea of to stay under, if you can think of just oppression, to stay under faithfully. It's like to not slip out. To not take a safety hatch. It's just to stay under. It is to endure. It's to persevere. Jesus doesn't fight back. He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't speak a word. Against them. He just takes it. Isaiah 53 7 prophesied this. He, speaking of the suffering servant, was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That's patience. That's godly, holy, righteous patience. And that patience means everything to you and to me. 1 Peter 2, 21 and 23, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued, here it is, continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He was never looking for justice from the Jews. He was looking for justice from his father and knew that he would get it because of his character. Psalm 86, 15, but you, O Lord, are a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is patient with us. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, even temple guards, but that all should come. To repentance Hebrews twelve three. consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself why so that you may not grow weary and faint hearted so that you might be patient and stay under and endure until Jesus returns wow we're running out of time kangaroo court (laughs) I mean I just don't there's really not words to describe it there's a little bit of it if if we didn't know anything about Christianity and we just heard this story we would just go really it doesn't make any sense at all based on everything that should have been true so again you go from uh, arrest to Annas to Caiaphas all of that happening under the cover of night violence shown toward Jesus the arrested the accused before he's ever tried and then what what's just what's so strange is it's like they feel a need to do something to legitimize what they've what they've been doing it's a joke the sanhedrin They would have gathered in the temple at daylight. So when day came, they get everybody together. Here's a picture of where they would have met. There would have been 71 men, one of which would have been the sitting high priest, Caiaphas. And at this point, they're not trying anybody. They've already made up their minds. They've already decided this is a mere formality. So they ask Jesus, if you are the Christ, tell us. Now that's a political question because Christ is the same as Messiah, is the same as ruler, is the same as insurrectionist before Rome. So if they can just get him to say, yeah, I'm the Christ, got him. They just, they just walk him down the street to Pilate and it's over. It's interesting how he responds. He said, if I tell you, and I'm not, (laughs) but if I did, you wouldn't believe me. And if I start asking you questions, you're not going to answer me. Um, Luke 20, 1 through 8, we covered this a while back. There was a similar kind of exchange. And Jesus takes them back to the baptism of John the Baptist. Who everybody recognized as a prophet. And he just pushes them right into the corner. They have nowhere to go. And so they go, we don't know. Okay, then I don't know. That's his his response. It's a stalemate. And this is encouraging. If Jesus wanted to skate free right here, he could have. But he came to die. So he pushes in. He's like, oh, by the way, let me add one thing to my answer. From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. That did it. It was not a confession of being the Christ in in a formal sense, like, he didn't say those words. But everything about that phrase says, listen, guys, let me tell you something. You're sitting in the judgment seat right now, but real soon, that's going to change. Son of Man would have been, uh, it's actually Jesus' favorite reference to himself throughout all the Gospels, but he specifically is taking them back to a vision out of Daniel 7. I want to read this to you because these guys know their Bibles they would have understood exactly what he was saying. Listen to Daniel 7, 13 and 14. He writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, that is, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages, including the Sanhedrin, should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. He's saying, guys, you better listen up. He he tells them that he is going to be seated at the right hand of the power of God. That's a quote from, not a direct quote, but a reference to Psalm 110. We studied that earlier. The Lord says to my Lord, this is David, King David, writing about his Lord. Two words of Lord here, God the Father, God the Son are referenced. So God the Father says to God the Son, sit at my right hand. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's the Son of Man. So he just said, guys, you're going to do what you're going to do. But just understand, this is the way this is going to go down in all of eternity. We're just in a little blip of a moment here. Though Jesus claimed an exalted position aside God the Father and suggested eventual authority over this kangaroo court, he still had not actually claimed to be equal with God. So they ask a follow-up. They said, are you the son of God then? Notice they shift away from son of man to son of God. And he said to them, you say that I am. I just have no idea (laughs) what that was about. I mean, if you read commentators, it's all over the map. He could have just said yes, but he didn't. Essentially, he's just kind of throwing it back on them. It's like, you guys seem to think that I am. Maybe I am. How about that? I mean, you're the religious leaders of Israel. You're the guys who are supposed to tell everybody else, when the Messiah arrives, maybe I'm that guy. It's a, one commentator said, it's a grudging admission, but an unqualified yes. He just doesn't say it straight up. Nevertheless, it's enough for them. So they said, What further testimony do we need? Oh, he's self incriminating again. How about that? That's just the craziest thing. We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. I mean, to the bitter end, they violate every principle of justice. But you know what? If they don't do that, we're not in here singing about his sweet mercy today. I want to ask you just... I don't want this to be some historical lesson. I hope that there's some way for you to find yourself in this story and to see Jesus doing all that he did on your behalf, however you identify with this story. And I hope this leads all of us to this this place of worship. I mean, the, the worship this morning was so sweet, and it's because I think we had a, a beautiful moment, a glimpse of who Jesus really is. And I hope this text has done the same. So I want to give you a moment to uh, prayerfully consider how to respond, like what might be a next right step, what's a change in your thinking, or even perhaps a change in the way you live. But ask the Holy Spirit to guide you to some kind of application this morning. And then we are going to pray uh, for a few minutes as an elder team with you and for you but I want to give you just a moment right now to ask the question we always ask when we come to God's word so what what difference does this make in my life how will I be different as I leave uh, this facility this morning okay take a moment and do that thanks